0: to the city on a hill church forest hills podcast we exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow jesus as king we're glad you're here and thanks for listening more information about the life and mission of city on a hill can be found at coah hills.org thank you heather for reading the word here at City on a Hill. We believe God's word is authoritative. We believe it is all that we need for for life and godliness. And so uh, when we come and we sit under God's word, we say, this is the word of the Lord because we're submitting ourselves to it. We're trusting and we're believing that God's word is good. And so we do that this morning as we gather. Again, welcome. My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. I'm really glad that you chose to worship with us today. It is a beautiful, beautiful day. Uh, We're having that weird, crazy New England weather. We're at 70 on Friday. Friday and Freezing on Saturday and beautiful on Sunday, and there's going to be a hailstorm. I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's probably going to happen tomorrow. There's all sorts of craziness, but I'm glad it's a beautiful day and that you were here with us today. Um, if you are a guest with us, we'd love to connect with you. You'll find that blue card, as Kayla mentioned, in your seat. You can fill that out. Just give us a little bit of info about you, and we will um, we will follow up with you. And for doing so, we will send you a five dollar gift card to a local coffee shop, as well as make a five dollar donation uh, to a list of from a, from a list of charities that you can choose from uh, via the email that we will send you. Um, Our values at City on a Hill are the gospel community and mission. Uh, The gospel is the good news that we were once separated from God because of our sins, that uh, our sins separated us from a good and holy God who created us. And because of that, um, we needed a savior. And Jesus, God himself, came and died for us, giving his life for us on the cross, raising again so that we could have new life in him. And if you've not entered into that relationship with Jesus, I would love to talk with you about that after the service. Secondly, community, God created us for relationships. We were created to know one another and god that's why God gives us the church. We experience this in community groups where people from different backgrounds, walks of life, all come together and celebrate God's goodness. And so we'd love to get you connected to one of those. And then lastly, mission, good news should be told. We, we tell good stories. And so we should tell of the good news of what Christ has done for us. So we live our lives sharing the hope of Jesus, but also living life shaped by the hope of Jesus that we love and serve our neighbors because of what Jesus has done for us. A few announcements before we jump into the text today. Uh, first is, after the service, we were having a kid's elementary age kids class. We're starting it back up this week. So elementary age kids, we're having a Bible study specifically for you. And so we're gonna be doing this. We've got a couple of excited kids. Uh, We're gonna do that right after, uh, right before giving at the end of the service. And so Matt will uh, dismiss kids. You'll you'll find Miss Sue right over here at the door and they'll be upstairs. Parents, you're welcome to hang out. You can go downstairs, grab coffee and uh, chat while the kids do that class. It'll wrap up close to 11 o'clock. And then coming up this coming Saturday, March the 26th, we're having a marriage conference in conjunction with our uh, City on a Hill Brookline Congregation. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the idea of marriage and just how, how this works. So even if you're single, this is a great thing for you to come to as well. The cost of that is uh, $25 for a couple, $12.50 for, uh, for an individual, and uh, lunch is included in that price. Uh, then coming up on Easter weekend, we are so, so excited for Easter weekend. We are having a Good Friday service here uh, on Good Friday, April 15th, an Easter egg hunt on that Saturday. So kids and some grown-up who so act like kids get excited, and then um, we're going to be doing Easter Sunday. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and so you'll actually find as you um, as you look at the back, go to the back table and the connect table, you'll find these Easter invitation cards. And I really want to challenge all of you to take five of these cards to pray about who you would invite to Easter with the goal of bringing one person with you to Easter Sunday, a a friend, a neighbor, hopefully someone locally who might be interested in hearing about Jesus. We'd love to challenge you to do that. So be sure to grab one of these cards or five of these cards on the way out. Um, Grab as many as you'd like, but try to grab five uh, on the way out. Now, I am am not a, a natural handyman. I am not somebody who is just going to just look at something and understand how it works. I use a lot of YouTube. Um, this is a Castello trait. My dad didn't teach me any of these things. My granddad wasn't any good at it. Um, we just, they typically just paid somebody. But early in our marriage, I had to learn how to fix things. And so go on YouTube, figure this out. So our first house that we own was in Birmingham, Alabama. It was built in 1930, right in the middle of downtown. It was an old, old house. So you can imagine that there were lots of things to fix on this house. And one time I go and I am trying to fix something under the sink. And so I realized that we have a leak under our sink and, uh, and I look and the faucet is leaking. And so I do my very best to get the faucet unhooked from the counter. And there is this little thing called a faucet nut. And this is the hardest thing you could possibly imagine to remove if you don't have the right tool. So I tried uh, every wrench that I had. I tried every pair of pliers, needle nose, channel lock. Every I tried to I hit it with a hammer, which is what you do when you don't know what else to do. Just hit it with a hammer. I used a blowtorch. I used everything I could possibly get to get this little plastic nut to come away from the faucet. And do you know what I needed? I needed a faucet nut wrench. This little piece of metal has one purpose in life. It is to remove this little piece of plastic from a faucet. And you know what happened immediately when I used the right tool? It came off. It's amazing how that works, right? Thank you, Google and Home Depot. And so use that, realizing that all I needed was the right tool. If you have the wrong tool for a job, you can waste a lot of time. A lot of time. And you can also do a lot of damage. I cannot believe that I did not not break that little plastic nut. We need the right tools for the job that is ahead of us. And if we kind of close out the book of Ephesians, we have one more week next week. Paul wants us to understand that we just need the right tools to face what's ahead of us. We need the right tools for the job. And as we've looked at the, the book of Ephesians, if you've not been with us, we've been studying Ephesians since uh, the middle of September, kind of slowly marching through the book. And Paul's vision for us is that our job, our assignment is that we would be a new people living in an entirely new way because of the new hope that we have in Christ. We'd be living in this, this new way. And so up until this point, he's given us this beautiful vision. He said, this is what it's going to look like. This is, this is how it's going to happen. And now he's saying, now I want you to go do it. So the word finally, everybody say finally with me. Finally, in verse 10, we see that he's turning a corner. He's saying, okay, now I've, I've told you everything. I want you to actually go and live it. I want you to go and actually do it. I want you to go live out this new life. I want you to be a people who live like you've been redeemed from your sins. I want you to be a people who live daily, trusting in the power of God. I want to see this diverse and beautiful family that I've called together from every tribe, tongue, and nation, reconciled together, unified in Christ, serving one another, submitting to one another. And he says, I want you to go do it. And he says, finally, to do this, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What he's saying is he's saying, It sounds easy on paper, but it's going to be really difficult to do in practice. It sounds really easy. In fact, it's not easy, but it's worth it. And in fact, this is going to be a fight for your faith. It's going to take a strength that you do not have. It doesn't say be strong in your own strength. It says be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's gonna be strong because it's gonna take a lot of strength because Paul's vision for the church seems really lofty. It's a really lofty vision that Paul's talking about here. Everybody's gonna get along, right? Everybody's gonna, you know, lay down all of our differences and our political differences and our, our social differences and our personal differences. We're gonna lay all those things down and be one big, happy family, but oftentimes our experience doesn't match what Paul writes here to the Ephesians. There are times that I just don't feel forgiven. Anybody else ever feel like that? There's times where your marriage doesn't look like what's described here in Ephesians chapter five, this mutual submission to one another. There are times where you're not experiencing intimacy with God and you're not feeling satisfied in your soul in him. And the reality is, is that what is being described in the letter to the Ephesians is not natural to us because of the sin that ravages us and ravages our world. It's not natural. There's a real opposition to us living this way. And there's a real enemy who opposes us and wants to divide us, wants to see us fall in our sin and wants to see the church falter. And so we need the right tools that God has given us to do this. We need the right tools to help us be strong, to stand firm in the Lord and stand on his promises. And the good news is just like Home Depot had that silly little faucet nut wrench, God has given us everything that we need for this job. He's given us everything that we need in Christ. So, but before we get there, we need to understand what we are facing. What is the battle that we are facing? Understanding the battle and the enemy that lies ahead of us. we need to see. We, you and I need to see that we are in for a fight. Paul says, be strong, put on the armor of the Lord in verse 11, verses 13 and 14, stand firm. Why? Because you are about to be in an all out war for your soul. That seems heavy, doesn't it? Paul's given this beautiful vision, do this, do this, everything's going to be great. And now it's war. The idea that good and evil are locked in a battle for existence itself is very core to us. Every story that we hear and listen to really is about good and evil. When you were a kid and you were listening to a story that's was just about making good choices, it's honestly saying don't make bad choices. This is why there are 87 different Marvel movies. That's why Lucas is dressed as, was dressed as Batman when he came in this morning because we want to see good overcome evil. We know that there is evil in the world and we long to see it vanquish. And in our experience, it's easiest for us to see personal evil. It's easy easier, easier for us to look at someone else and we see the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine. We see racial injustice. We see corruption. We see when someone wrongs us or cheats us, we can look at somebody and we might even say, you know what, he or she is evil. That, that's Evil. And there have been lots of explanations to try to explain why there is evil in the world. Some people believe it's just simply personal. Each, Each person makes all their own choices and therefore that person would be evil or not. Some people think it's sociological. This is just kind of baked into us over time, generations after generation evolving this way that we've just become more like this. Some people say that the solution is education. But in fact, if you look at human history, some of the most educated societies in history have created the greatest atrocities. Some say it's just simply personal greed. And while all of those may be a piece of the puzzle, there are some missing pieces. Tim Keller says that evil is multidimensional. We often think of evil being out there. Evil is what other people do. But if we're honest with ourselves, evil also is in us. We are evil. Our hearts are bent towards sin. Our hearts desire to do what God does not want us to do. But it's not just out there and in here. It's also above us. And this is what Paul is trying to get at in this idea of a war that is occurring, a spiritual war occurring in our world. He's saying there are very real spiritual forces, evil forces that desire destruction, that desire to destroy all that's good, and that this battle is not against flesh and blood, as verse 12 tells us, but this is a spiritual battle. This is a battle... That's against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What this means is that ultimately, our enemy is not another person. Our enemy is not a political party. Our enemy is is not even just unjust practices. Even the person who makes you their enemy are not the ultimate enemy. There is an enemy and a force behind all of those things that is seeking destruction. And so the question we come to when we look at this passage is, is the idea of the demonic. Are demons real? Jesus would say yes. Jesus believed in them. In fact, if you look at a lot of the stories about Jesus, he is casting out demons as this picture of the kingdom of God overcoming darkness. Jesus describes them as real. And we know that Paul believes this too, because all the way back in chapter one and verses 20 through 22, we see Paul saying that that he, Christ, work, he, or that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Jesus' victory is a spiritual victory over sin and darkness. And this is not a battle of equal forces. We're not saying that you, know, you got good over here and evil's over here. We're kind of wondering whether evil's going to defeat good. We know the end of the story, right? We know what this is going to look like. Jesus has defeated Satan. This is like a basketball game. We've been watching a lot of March Madness in my house. And some of these games are blowouts. And the game's like 80 to like 12. I was actually watching the South Carolina women held the other team, I think it was Howard, to four points at halftime. Now, no matter how much damage Howard tries to do in the second half, they are beat. That's what it's like between Satan and Jesus. Satan is going to try to run up the score as much as he can, but it's almost like Jesus is looking, hey, look at the scoreboard. I've already won. The victory is won. And we see this victory in the church in chapter three of Ephesians where it says that the manifold wisdom of God is revealed in the church that Jesus has defeated Satan's sin and death. Amen? Amen. And what this does is it reframes the battle for us. That my, Our battle is not against my neighbor who never takes their trash cans back in. My my battle is not against my friend who's now become my enemy. My battle is not in the contentious part of my marriage. My battle is not against my boss or my employer. My battle is about something much deeper. John Piper says that whenever someone's flesh attacks me or someone's blood boils against me or my way is hindered by man, something else is also going on. Something deeper, bigger, more terrible, more sinister, more destructive than meets the eye. And what this does is it reframes it in such a way that we begin to see people rightly. That there may actually be someone who's committing evil against you. There may be a person who is hurting you, but also it gives you a deeper level of compassion because not only is this person doing this, but this is a person who's captive to demonic influence, being deceived by demonic forces. Now does that let a person off the hook? Absolutely not. We are responsible for our choices, but it shifts our attention to who our real enemy is. And ultimately our focus on where our hope comes from when we fight back. So this is a very real spiritual battle, but it also means that this is a, we have a very real spiritual enemy a very real spiritual enemy who wants to oppress us and doesn't want the church to unite and doesn't want to see believers thriving, followers of Jesus thriving. And so who does Paul say is behind this? Look at verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? The devil. Now here in the West, we hear the word devil and we kind of roll our eyes. We, we we think about this. We we make fun of this. There was an old SNL skit where uh, there was the church lady, and whenever something bad was happening on, you know, she'd, she'd be like, mm, what, "Could it could it be Satan?" Like that. That's kind of what we think of. We we kind of you know kind of mock the devil. We roll our eyes like the devil really made you do it. But if you read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, he gives this really beautiful, interesting. Uh, Fictional uh, idea of what this looks like. Screw tape is this demon is writing to his underling, Wormwood. And he said, there are two ways to deceive somebody when it comes to the demonic. He says, for the patient, which is the person he was influencing, he said, you can cause the person to obsess about the devil, or you can cause the person to not think about him at all. And I think that's more our temptation is that we are just convinced he doesn't exist. We're convinced that the devil is some guy in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork. But the way that the Bible describes Satan is, I'm not going to say, I want not say Satan, I'm going to say that for the rest of the sermon, um, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A serpent who's whispering lies and deception. And the Bible describes him as an angel who fell from heaven, who wanted to usurp God and now exists to turn everyone and everything away from him. And he has, as verse 11 says, many schemes to do just that. Ways to attempt to draw our eyes away from the God that loves us to sow seeds of destruction. And so what does this look like? It means that his his schemes are everywhere. Ephesians chapter 2 says that he is the prince of the power of the air. Where is air? Everywhere. It means that there are schemes in your home that he's trying to sow, in in the car. The, the, the air seems to be really thick in relationships, Right? It's really interesting that Paul writes this after a very long section about relationships because you know where the point of attack for many of Satan's schemes is? It's right in the middle of our relationships. It's at work, it's with our kids, it's with our marriage. It's when we come to church and we try to relate to somebody else that we have a hard time relating with. His schemes are also varied. The word scheme is the word methodios. What does that word methodios sound like? Methods. Satan has lots of methods in order to distract us. You don't think that Satan has a scheme for Ukraine, that he has a scheme for the religious South, that he has a scheme for Jamaica Plain. And you may not think that this is real, but just go take one trip down to Mass and Cast and tell me that the heroin and meth epidemic is not demonic. Not that the people are, but that that very thing, the drug itself is capturing people and holding them in bondage the cosmic powers and rulers of the air. And sometimes this is an all-out assault, like a roaring lion, and sometimes it is the serpent whispering lies, such as did God really say that? Are you sure that that's true? Are you sure that you're loved and forgiven? His schemes are everywhere. They're varied, but they also have a very clear purpose. John 10, 10, Satan taught, it said that Satan came to what? Kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus came to give what? Life. So all of Satan's schemes are meant to pull our view away from the life that Jesus promises in order to lead us into destruction. It's as Tony Evans says that one of the devil's main tricks is to cause you to miss the goodness of God. And he does this attempting to diminish your view of the goodness of God really three ways through sowing doubt, causing distraction, and bringing discouragement. Doubt, distraction, and discouragement. Making you doubt the goodness of God. Did the same thing to Adam and Eve where he says, did God really say, did God really say he'd provide for everything that you need? He does this through, through distraction. And I think this is why during Lent, we should try to fast from things that distract us. Social media, Netflix, whatever it might be. Because how many times instead of running to the Lord, do we reach in our pocket and start to Scroll. We, when we had the week of fasting, the day that we were doing this with social media, I caught myself reaching into my pocket so many times to pick up my phone and just start scrolling Facebook. We're so distracted. And he also seeks to discourage us to believe that the victory is not won. And so Paul here is saying, he's saying, listen, you're going to face these things. These, these things are going to happen. You're gonna have times where you're gonna doubt God's forgiveness. You're gonna have times where loving others will be hard, and sometimes you're gonna be hard to love. There'll be times where your trust gets broken and it's gonna be easy to just cancel somebody. It's gonna be, it's gonna be times where you get overlooked and slighted and looked down upon. Your relationships are gonna get strained. You might even lose friendships. Paul's saying, I want you to understand this is a very real fight for your faith by an enemy who wants nothing more than your destruction. And this is why he tells us, be strong. And what is he saying when he's saying that telling us to be strong he's saying you can do it you can win it is possible to see victory in everyday life as you follow Jesus he's saying that it is not hopeless that God is not sending you into the slaughter because Satan and everything that he tells you is a lie the battle's not hopeless it's not lost Satan may be a lion but he is a lion on a leash because Jesus won the victory. He defeated Satan's sin and death at the cross, taking every ounce of the wrath of God upon his shoulders. Every bit of shame that Satan could lobby at you, every bit of guilt that he could condemn you with, Jesus took that upon himself with being every bit of payment that you needed. And that he died and he rose again. And that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you now to strengthen you for the fight that is ahead of you. And so Paul tells us to do this, to be strong and to stand by putting on the full armor of God to take the good news of the gospel and to apply it, to apply its benefits, meaning that what Jesus did to overcome the enemy can now happen in you. So how do we do that? How do we we take that full armor upon ourselves to fight this very real enemy? The second thing we need to see is understanding how the gospel helps you fight. We do this by putting on the armor of God. Again, applying the benefits of the gospel, to take the benefits of the gospel and to use them, to to take God up on his promise. And what's interesting about every one of these phrases, whether it's to be strong, to put on, uh, to, to stand, all of those, it's really weird the way the grammar works. All of those, it's the idea that you're taking something that's not your own, that's being given to you, and you're now doing it. So you don't have the strength to stand, but God gives you the strength to stand. You don't have the strength to put on. You don't have the armor to put on, but God gives you the armor. You don't have the ability to stand, but God gives you a steady ground to stand on. And all these are written in such a way saying that the benefits of your salvation are things that are given to you that you now have to take on and make your own. I'm in a weird place as a parent now. I now have teenagers and they have teenager friends and these friends come to the house. And what do teenagers do more than anything else? They eat and they eat and they eat, and they eat. And so all these teenage friends come over, and my, my, one of my daughters has all friends who are boys, and they're all giants. And this, they come to our house, and I, I always wanted to be the house where my kids' friends wanted to come. I'm like, please come, come hang out, eat whatever you want, go to the fridge, do it. Eat us out of house and home, it's totally fine. They come over one day and there's this one boy and he comes upstairs and he's kind of milling around and we're watching him. We're like, you need to go. To, what do you need? You need to go to the bathroom or something. And Amy's like, well, he's like, well, I'm, I'm kind of hungry. I'm like, okay. So she hands him an orange and this orange looks like a walnut in this kid's hand. This kid's a, he's a giant. He towers over me. He's, he's still scared of me, but he's, he's a, uh, but he looks like a walnut in his hand. And he's kind of like, okay. And he starts to kind of like slink back toward downstairs. And Amy goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do you want more food? He's like, yeah. So she's like loading him up with stuff. And he has this giant smile on his face. Even though we told him that he could take whatever was available to him in the house, he still wouldn't do it. He didn't want to impose. He didn't want to be rude. Even though we told him to, we do the same thing with the promises of God. There's an invitation here for you and I that all we need, we can have. We just have to take it all the strength we need, God provides. But we hear about the mercy and the forgiveness of God. And when we sin again, we say, God, I don't really want to impose. Are you sure that you want to give me that again? Aren't you getting tired of having to be generous to me, Lord? We hear about the mercies of God being new each morning and they're new each morning because why? We need them every morning, but yet we don't actually apply them and believe that God freely gives us his grace. We even see this in the grace of the church that God provides a church for us to have relationships with people who will point us to Jesus and help us keep going, who will fight this battle with us. And the promise that if we'll be present and vulnerable, you will find no more loving, forgiving, and gracious people than you will find in the church. But the reality is, is you have to show up. You have to press in. You have to commit. You have to take God up on his promises. When you go into work tomorrow morning and you're saying, God, I want to honor you and I want to treat my boss and my my coworkers well, you have to take God up on the promise that he will be enough for you and he will give you the patience that you need. When your relationships get hard, you have to remind yourself of the fact that Jesus loves you when you're unlovable. When temptation comes knocking at the door, you have to be reminded that God said he will always provide a way out. And so this is how the gospel works in us. And we see this in the armor of God. The gospel does a few things as this armor. First of all, it prepares you. It prepares you for battle. Verse 14 begins to describe different aspects of this armor. And this would have been very familiar to a Roman here who would have been thinking about an army uniform. And so we see that some of these aspects of the gospel actually prepare you for the fight. You do these things before you ever get into it. One of these is the belt of truth. The word is literally girdle, okay? And so that, a girdle isn't like something you go into battle with, but a girdle or a belt in the ancient world would have been the foundational document that you put on before you put on anything else. It was a thing that clung to you and made sure that your tunic was tucked in so that you could run. It's what you tucked your sword into. You made sure you had that on because it girded you for battle. And, and our terminology would think of tightening your belt meant that you could lock in and that you could focus on what mattered. Tim Keller says, to put on the belt of truth means to say like Jesus did, that if the Bible says it, then I must do it. This also means that we have to do this and we have to put it on Jesus's way. It's like the old meatloaf song, which I will not sing. I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. I don't know what that is, but he won't do it. There's something that we are tempted to not do. God, I'll do anything but that. I'll trust you with everything except for that. And what we're really saying is, God, I believe that you are good, but I'm not sure that you are here. And it's kind of like walking into battle without a piece of armor on. It means that we give ourselves to what's true. We cling to what God says, even if it's not popular, even if others don't agree, even if the circumstances seem crazy, because we need to cling to the idea of what does the Bible say about God? What does it say about us? What does it say about how I'm called to live? And what this does is it prepares us and reminds us that suffering's not going to last. It reminds us that God is still faithful, that our sins are still forgiven. We're also prepared with the breastplate of righteousness. This is really cool imagery. Such cool imagery. Said the, the idea of putting on the righteousness of Christ. So when you think of a breastplate, it doesn't just protect; it also it covers, it hides what's underneath. What is directly underneath the breastplate? Your heart. That it, it protects it, but it also means that you can't see it. My heart and your heart are sinful, and we don't have the rightness in our lives that pleases God. And when we put that breastplate of righteousness on, what it means is that you don't get to really see what it's like underneath. And that's the gospel that God, when he looks at us, when we we wear the righteousness of Christ, we stand before him and it covers us. That the righteousness of Christ, his right standing before God is applied to us despite what we've done. And so when we apply this, we begin to realize I'm actually loved apart from what I do. I'm actually accepted. My sins are really, truly forgiven because it's not about what I've done, but what Jesus has done in my place. And so when Satan attacks us, when he condemns us, we're prepared and we know the good news of the gospel. Now, a breastplate didn't just cover the front, it also covered the back. And this past week, it was St. Patrick's Day. And by the way, St. Patrick's Day is about more than beer and green rivers. It really is. St. Patrick brought the gospel to Ireland. And St. Patrick had this this famous, what was called a lorica. And and the word lorica, means breastplate. I actually want us to read this together. It should be on the screen. I want us to read this together, this idea of what a breastplate, what the breastplate of righteousness does. Read this with me. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Do you have any doubt how covered you are by the righteousness of Christ? It prepares us for what faces us, not just that, but also the shoes for your feet. One, one preacher called these gospel boots. It's like gospel Yeezys or gospel Jays. Uh, these were the best possible boots you could get in the Roman world. In fact, historians said that one of the reasons that the Roman Empire won so many battles was because of the fact that they had the best footwear. They, these were like toeless cleats. So that when they were in battle and they were locked face to face with another army, they could stand their ground. The gospel prepares you to stand your ground with the peace of Jesus. The gospel gives peace that readies and steadies our hearts for the evil world we live in. John chapter 16, one of my favorite verses says, I've said these things to you, that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The gospel prepares you so that when temptation comes you're reminded of what's true. When you're bombarded by shame, you know the righteousness that's been given to you that you can hold your ground and be peaceful in a non-peaceful world. Now notice all of these things come from the word of God. All of these things are told from, so you're putting on the armor. There's been some really cheesy ways to think about the armor. You're not Iron Man. You're not like belt of truth activate. Like you don't do that. Like you have to read the word of God. And, and you put on the armor before you go into battle. You can't say, excuse me, I need to get this girdle right. Like you, you have to put this on before you even enter into the fight. And we prepare ourselves with the gospel by reading God's word. You can't cling to truth you don't know. You won't be reminded of the righteousness of Christ if you're not filling your mind with the fact that you've received it. You won't know where peace is found unless you're daily abiding and finding peace in God. And I wanna challenge you right now, if if you're not reading God's word, just take between now and Easter, read a Psalm a day, I guarantee that it will completely change the way that you face your day. So the gospel prepares us, but it also protects us. Armor is meant to be defensive. We see that we are, we, in, uh, in verse 16, that in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, meaning that in every circumstance that you face, you can face it with faith. The shield in, in, in the Roman times would have actually looked like a giant door. It would have been like two pieces of wood glued together with hide on the outside. And in order to keep flaming arrows from, from basically making the whole thing catch on fire, they would put the hide on and they would dunk it in water before they went into battle. In every circumstance that you face, the faith of Jesus protects you. What do arrows do? What would a flaming arrow do? First, it would pierce, right? Meaning when you feel the piercing pain of criticism from another person, it doesn't consume you. When you fail, it doesn't cause you to not run to Jesus. When you have doubts or despair, these things tend to, tend to spread in our minds. The Lord is saying daily by faith, you can trust me with these things like a helmet of salvation. Whether you're in sports or in war, never forget your helmet because you have to protect your head. Saying that the salvation we've received from Jesus will save us in our day-to-day interactions with the world. The word protects us, but it also empowers us. Up until now, up until verse 17, we've not had one single offensive weapon. Everything's been deepened to, except for here, the sword of the Spirit. He's talking about the word of God itself. Now, how is this different than how the word prepares you or how the word protects you? Well, the word for word here is the Greek word rima, which means a timely word. It means a word in a time of trouble. And this is where preparation is vital because what's happening here is that you're drawing from a deep well of truths that have been stored away in your heart through daily abiding with Jesus. And you can't draw from a dry well. This idea of applying the word, the sword of the spirit, praying the word is the situational application of the promises and truths of the gospel through prayer. Meaning that God gives you the very words that you need to pray in times of trouble. The very truths you need to cling to when you feel like your world is falling apart. The very things you need to believe when you doubt. The very things you need to apply that when you're tempted, you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I believe he leads me to green pastures. That when I'm lonely, I can say there's a God who never leaves me nor forsakes me. That when I fail and fall in sin again, we're reminded that if you sin, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ. When you're tempted to doubt the love of God, you're reminded that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You're in a spiritual battle and whatever you are facing, God is with you and he's equipped you with everything that you need to face it. Just a couple of questions as we close. First of all, what are you battling right now? What did you bring in here with you this morning that feels like a spiritual battle? And then secondly, what are you using to fight the battle? Some of you are using your own willpower. Some of you are just avoiding it. Some of you are are trying to, you know you're you're just trying to educate your way out of it. you're trying to think your way out of it. you're trying to you know uh, to exercise your way out of it. We're doing all these things, but are you trusting in the very means that God has given you to face each day with faith? We can trust God has provided this for us because Jesus went ahead of us and did this. that Jesus is the very truth that clings to you that he is your perfect righteousness, that he is the one who stands the ground and makes peace. He's the shield who protects you and that he is your salvation. Let's pray.